it was actually all about being willing to take some risks in your career and uh, you know stepping through doors that opened that you didn't exactly know what was going to be on the other side but you know it was going to be interesting important you were going to learn something and develop new skills and being willing to take some of those risks and I think that's been a kind of a hallmark when I do a kind of a self-assessment of, of my career, you know, being willing to step through some of those open doors that I never would have thought would have opened for me, and they did, and uh, I took advantage of them. From Qualtrics Industries, this is Breakthrough Builders, a series of conversations with people whose passions, perspectives, instincts, and ideas fuel some of the world's most amazing products, brands, and experiences. I'm Jesse Pierwall. Today on the show, how a deep love for chemistry, an inclusive leadership style, and the ability to experiment at scale enabled Mike Stern to deliver technology innovation to farmers all around the world and move the global agriculture industry forward. I am here with Dr. Michael Stern. Mike, it's great to have you. Pleasure to be here, Jesse. So Mike, you and I have worked together a good bit over the years. You've been a big influence on me. I think you're an astute leader. You're a thoughtful teammate. You've been committed over the course of your career to learning and making decisions based on facts and data, but also on, on empathy. Um, I kind of characterize you as somebody who has a, a 360 degree empathy of the facts, the feelings, the science and the soul sets you apart in my mind as as a builder. So I'd love it, Mike, if you could first lay out maybe a little bit about your background and your areas of expertise. Sure, Jesse. I have a PhD in chemistry, uh, so I'm formally trained as a scientist and uh, have been utilizing that skill set for my entire uh, 32-year career. I've uh, worked uh, my entire career for a Monsanto company, starting out as a, a scientist in a laboratory and then ultimately moving up into uh, different various commercial roles, leading global businesses. And today I'm uh, the CEO of the Climate Corporation, which is now part of all of all this is part of Bear Crop Science, and the Climate Corporation is a uh, digital ag company that I've been the CEO of for the past six years. And Mike, you are uh, an adroit scientist. You went deep in chemistry early uh, in your career, but I think even earlier in your life, how did you know as a young person that you had a deep interest in science? Was there an inflection point or a set of experiences that catalyzed that? I first really became interested in science when I was in uh, middle school and in high school. And I did have a, uh, a chemistry teacher. His name was Ken Drews. He was very inspirational to me. Uh, he made the science fun and interesting. And I just really fell in love with chemistry. And so I took two years of chemistry from him in high school. And often uh, a professional will go look back in their in their early years at, at a teacher who really made an impact on them. And uh, Ken was that impact for me. And I went into my college career knowing that I was going to be a chemistry major. So and, and, and science and math, all these things came together for me in high school. You went from high school, I believe, before you started um, at, at Denison for your undergrad, you had the unique experience of getting to volunteer at, at Johns Hopkins. Is that right? Yeah, yes, I did. Around my uh, 
senior year in high school, I really knew that I, I enjoyed the lab work a lot and uh, had a chance to do that, of course, in high school. And I grew up in Baltimore, so I had a chance to volunteer at Johns Hopkins University working in a lab. And this was really my first lab experience where, you know, real scientists doing work. We were studying uh, melanins, which are skin pigments, and trying to understand their role in skin cancer or protecting against skin cancer. And uh, I just remember being there every day and I had a little job. I was running uh, gels uh, uh, in the lab and, uh, and mixing some reagents, but I just thought it was the best thing I, I could have ever done. And it really excited me about going forward as I went to college and continuing uh, my training in chemistry. I love it. So you go on to your undergrad in chemistry, you get a master's then from Michigan in organic chemistry, a PhD from Princeton, you do a postdoc. Mike, you get deeply committed to this field. So as you were going through that academic journey, did you have an end goal in mind or were you on this journey kind of in a mode of learning and discovering where it might take you? I definitely went into my uh, professional training knowing I wanted to get a PhD in chemistry. So I felt very fortunate about that and uh, having three boys and seeing them go through, uh, you know, the learning process of trying to figure out what their careers are and, and just other uh, other kids. It, it was really, I felt in hindsight, very fortunate to know where I wanted to go and, and to get a PhD in chemistry and then do a, a postdoc um, as well. It wasn't exactly clear to me whether or not I was going to go into academics or into industry, and it just turned out that my PhD advisor at Princeton, a guy named uh, John Groves, was also a consultant for Monsanto. And Monsanto at that time was a uh, from an industrial scientific organization, was one of the leaders in the country, in the world. And I was talking to him about uh, career opportunities, and he connected me with the head of their corporate research group. That's kind of how I ended up uh, in industry. Were you one of the few people who had a very highly specific domain expertise in the room in those early years or because of the industries where the company was engaged did you find yourself with people who were very different depth sort of domain experts all around the company you know you look back on your career and you find these watershed events or or, or circumstances or opportunities that in hindsight you see very very clearly had a tremendous influence on your career and future growth. I joined a small group within corporate research, which was called Chemical Sciences. And it was about 35 PhD scientists with all sorts of different backgrounds. So it was a very collaborative, very diverse group of highly well-trained uh, scientists. Uh, the, the task uh, of this particular group was to come up with these new innovations that were going to shape the future of the company going forward and to kind of push the envelope. And so I had this great opportunity to work uh, very closely with a bunch of uh, highly talented scientists early in my career. Mike, can you talk about the specific opportunity or the problem that you were trying to solve in in your role in in that group? And I think the piece that you were involved in at that stage of your career was actually not just influential in pushing the envelope in your leadership acumen, but also taking the company in a new direction, if I recall right. In the mid-1990s, it was clear that um, one of our key products, which was Roundup, was going to come off patent in 2000. And there was a uh, big effort put together at the corporate level 
to begin to, to explore ways to make the active ingredient glyphosate as well as formulate that product to make it essentially cheaper and better because we knew we would be facing generic competition, you know, four or five years into the future. And so I had the opportunity to be able to go ahead and lead this entire project within Monsanto. It was actually called G50, which stood for cutting the manufacturing and formulation cost of glyphosate by 50%. This was really my first foray into the ag industry. And it was also my first role at moving really out of the laboratory to be a truly a, a, a technology uh, manager. And uh, so it was a very big developmental opportunity for me, but it was also incredibly impactful to the company. And uh, over those four years, we came up with uh, all sorts of new technology that actually is, is still being implemented and used today. I learned a lot about managing scientists and just managing people in general. Still had this, but in, in the context of science. And Mike, you obviously had domain expertise that allowed you to get where you needed to get cognitively around the product, around the science. But as you took on more and more of that management accountability, Mike, how did you shore up your understanding of the business and use that understanding to bring the organization along? It's, it's really a question about my career trajectory. And after working on this special project, this G50 project, which of course was very visible within Monsanto and really began to operate at the interface of you know, the science as well as the business. From that work, I actually began to get more attention from the commercial team and, and people began to see me not only as a science leader, but also as a commercial leader. Those opportunities uh, came my way because of the work I was doing within science, I, I began to uh, think of myself now as someone who could actually not only understand the science, but now I could actually move more into uh, running these businesses. And in fact, that was kind of my career path. And uh, it was also my first realization that my science training was actually going to serve me very, very well in business. You know, the rigor of how you approach a problem, uh, framing it in, designing experiments, I had the same kind of fundamental processes hold for business as well. And Mike, about 10 or 12 years ago in that time when we were getting to know each other, you and the team would talk a lot about what I remember as, as technology parity, that even if one company in agriculture had a technology edge one year in the product or somebody had a distribution advantage at some point, the steady state that you and the team were long-term scenario planning around was, you know, just like a the network might get commoditized in telco or the chipset might get commoditized in computing that this seed and chemistry technology could get to parity within a competitive market. And so I remember you looking out at the market and saying, boy, we might have an opportunity to differentiate with farmer customers in some different ways. Can you talk about that reflection and what you learned in that point? You know, if you're an innovative company or a company that is, is driving innovation, it's all about continuing to do so because uh, ultimately new innovations do become commoditized and you know you need to be moving on to the next thing. What's interesting about the business that we were in, particularly the seed business, was we actually drove this parity because of a decision we made early on to license our biotechnology traits broadly across the industry versus just keeping them to ourselves and our own brands. There was a lot of debate about that, but ultimately 
by licensing these very innovative biotech traits and new technology to, to the industry, we were able to get on virtually all the acres, not just our 30% market share. And so it was a um, it was clearly a good business decision uh, to be able to do that. But it also created challenges, as you've mentioned, if, if you're going to take your your new innovations and actually allow your competitors to utilize them as well, then you have to begin to think about how to compete on different dimensions. And uh, we had several different dimensions that we were we were uh, developing. First of all, uh, we had gone out and bought 30, 40 seed companies, small independent seed companies. So we had a variety of different brands, which created a variety of different segments in the marketplace. So we were going to compete. And this, of course, where you and I got to work together a lot on what would be our brand strategy to differentiate ourselves? What were the segments and how could we take these brand assets and align them uniquely across these different customer segments in the marketplace? So um, you know, we had to really think hard about how we were going to compete differently. And so it was in brands, it was in, 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 in brand equities, it was in service, uh, for sure. It was in, our, in, in a multiple distribution um, channels that we were operating in because of the brands that we had. So it was very, very different. And it was very uh, disruptive to the industry uh, for us to go ahead and actually bring multiple different brands together under one roof that would actually be competing in the marketplace through different channels. But we felt that this was going to be a true differentiator. And uh, of course, that was there was an awful lot of work done to figure out, you know, how do we bring this to the marketplace to be successful? And Mike, can you talk about the way that those kinds of decisions help evolved the category to potentially become more grower centric, more farmer centric. You were in some ways with these decisions you were making uh, on behalf of driving different value propositions to different segments, uh, forcing sort of a reckoning around a, a legacy retail business that had been well established for many decades. So what was that disruption like as you collaborated with, uh, but moved things forward with your retail partners? It was very disruptive. And I think the the learning the you know kind of the high level learning there is that disruption often is at the core of true innovation. This was a big change for the classic ag industry, particularly in North America, and a big change and um, for how Monsanto thought about our go to market strategy. And it became a uh, it, it was definitely a challenge. You know, our retail partners at the time were questioning, you know, are, are, what is this? Is this all about going around us? Are we, you know, we have your flagship brands and what does all this mean to us? And it took quite some time, several years to to work this out. But now if you look at the industry today, virtually all the multinational major seed companies now have a multi-brand strategy. Either they have gone through retail or they and then went out again and bought independent companies or had independent companies have now decided to go through retail. So this innovation with respect to how we thought about going to market in the mid 2000s is now really uh, just kind of standard practice in the seed business right now with, uh, with, with some of the larger companies in the industry. Yeah, and it was really interesting at that time to either accept or reject, depending on which your null hypothesis was, uh, the notion that farmers didn't care about brand or that, hey, these these are growers who are product driven and they're just following the yields or following the productivity. It's very true that yields and productivity were, you know, exceptionally important. But I think it was really helpful 
to kind of empirically validate that there was a, uh, an emotional importance uh, of, of brand in sort of helping steward that relationship to kind of give permission uh, to some of the decisions that maybe were, were on the table in terms of doing something differently. Yeah, you know, I think it goes all the way back to our earlier conversation about what formed my uh, worldview, if you will, with respect to management and, and my training. And uh, I always have gone back and, re and relied on the training in the physical sciences, you know, cause and effect, designing experiments. And ultimately for me, it was going back to the data. You know, let's talk to our customers. Let's look at this objectively. Uh, there's no way for us to kind of just feel our way through this. It's too disruptive. We need to ground ourselves in, in some fact and some data and conduct some experiments on how we would go forward. And that's exactly what we did. And as you know, this was not something that just happened in a single season. This evolved over many years, uh, but ultimately relying on, on data and uh, you know conducting experiments has been a hallmark of how I have thought about uh, virtually every job I've had. And uh, uh, it's always served me very well. And Mike, you mentioned your time leading American Seeds uh, here in, in the U.S., but a, a few years after that, you're actually running the entire seed and trait business for the Americas. Did you ever sort of pause at that juncture and, and say, wow, you know, you, we've done a lot. I've kind of done a lot with this company, grown a lot, had a lot of impact. Or was it always like, no, we're like, we're on a mission to feed the world. We're supporting the ag community. The, the work is never done. As you got to that stage, what were your reflections on where you'd gone and maybe where you wanted to go next? Running the business for the Americas, um, I found to be incredibly exciting and challenging because the types of products we were developing in our seed business, we were really just beginning to launch them in South America. And of course, South America was a very different place, particularly in Brazil, in a different culture, geopolitical situation. I went fairly rapidly from running American seeds to running the U.S. business and to running the business across the Americas. I did step back every now and then and kind of pinch myself and, and ask the question, how did I get here? You know, I'm, I, I was a, a chemist from Baltimore. You know, I didn't grow up on a farm. And I, and I look back on kind of where my career kind of how it evolved and where I ended up. I, I, I just can't imagine doing anything else. You know, I'm passionate about agriculture. The things that we do really do make a difference. The products we bring to the marketplace does make a big difference on how we think about producing food globally. So it clearly, uh, in some ways, I look back to it and I go, gosh, uh, what a surprise. I never, you know, if you would have interviewed me while I was doing my postdoctoral fellowship at MIT, that I would someday be running this global ag business with all sorts of neat technology associated with it. You know, I don't think that was even in the realm of, I would have said it was in the realm of possibilities for me early in my career. For me, it was actually all about being willing to take some risks in your career, stepping through doors that opened that you didn't exactly know what was going to be on the other side, but you know it was going to be interesting, important, you were going to learn something and develop new skills and being willing to take some of those risks. And I think that's been a kind of a hallmark when I do a kind of a self-assessment of, of my career, you know, being willing to step through some of those open doors that I never would have thought would have opened for me. And they did. And uh, I took advantage of them. Mike, let me ask you to extrapolate that one, one step 
further. So for kids who don't grow up on farms, who, who they might have great skills and great education, you know, deep knowledge base, it could get put to good use in a category like agriculture or, or digital agriculture. How do you attract those kinds of people, that kind of talent in, into the business? Well, I think the industry today is even more attractive than it was 15 or 20 years ago. But today, I feel it's a much more inclusive and diverse uh, industry. And one of the reasons is that uh, it is so clear today of the challenges that we have going forward. And agriculture is at the heart of many of these things, whether that be you know, how are we going to feed a, a planet sustainably, you know, when we're going to put two, two and a half billion more people on the planet over the next 20 years uh, with decreasing arable land, uh, fewer natural resources, absolutely a changing climate. So I think the industry itself is facing challenges that are necessitating us to bring in uh, much more diverse skill sets. My role today as the CEO of the Climate Corporation is just another example of that. Um, about how we think about data and data science in this area in agriculture and of course how that's bringing in a whole different set of folks that have never stepped foot on a farm yet are bringing important skill sets and talents and creativity to um, to address some of the real challenges that we have I think that's great for the industry I think it's great uh, for for our business you know uh, to be able to bring in um, a bunch of, of different types of, of folks trained differently. You know, my experience as a scientist, just to kind of go back to my scientific roots and trying to solve really difficult problems, uh, and I've seen this over and over again, not only in my personal experience, but observing others, really hard problems are more often than not having to, has to be solved at the interface of many different disciplines. And so cross-functional teams and diver with diverse talent in them are the way you solve these really, really tough uh, and important problems more often than not. And uh, I just see that continuing, uh, and particularly in agriculture. And Mike, I do want to go next into your journey into becoming the lead of the Climate Corporation. But before I go there, when did you first detect digital experiences, data, uh, you know, access to data on mobile devices, starting to come into the agricultural decision-making process in a, in a meaningful way, whether that was at retail or whether that was with, with farmers, but, you know, outside of corporate, you know, in, in a, in the ecosystem of, of the producers and, and on the input side, when did you start to realize that, okay, this is going to be potentially the next wave in, in agriculture? There wasn't an enormous amount of like external things going on 10 years ago outside of weather. You know, really, of course, what you began to see are more weather apps and, you know, people tracking weather on their phones. But again, even 10 years ago, if you think about, you know, smartphones, they were just beginning to really proliferate. Um, so it was a very, very different environment than where we are today. We began to see at Monsanto early on that we had an enormous amount of R&D data, research data that we were developing, you know, just in, in bringing our products to the marketplace, particularly in the field and field trials that we felt it was going to be underutilized. And it was just the beginning of, of thinking about how can you bring these data sets together? Can you begin to go and extract more value from them? 
than you know uh, we had in the past. If you had the right type of data, the magnitude of data, you could really begin to do some uh, unique things in agriculture, formulating in our minds that this, in fact, was going to be this next wave of innovation, this data science wave. And so, Mike, late 2013, I think Mon- Monsanto decides to make an investment in data science in a big way by acquiring the, the Climate Corporation, and it would become uh, a, a meaningful part of uh, <laughs> of the next stage of your career. You uh, were asked to take on the role of, of CEO there as it became the data science business within Monsanto, even before Bayer. I have to think that there are there are some in your shoes who would have said, okay, I'm I'm leading the business for all the Americas as part of what was then a, a $15 billion, $16 billion business. I'm owning a lot of revenue, many customers, many products, uh, versus a more burgeoning, almost startup within the business. Um, totally different stage of maturity. And and to boot, <laughs> it, it wasn't, you know, even in, you know, your home in the headquarters city of St. Louis is out in California. So all all kinds of ways to uh, disrupt yourself there. Can you talk about the choice that you made to go run climate and what compelled you to do it? You know, I look back on that and uh, it was a kind of a situation that I found myself in many times in my career. So again, as you mentioned, I've been running the, running the Americas, but only for 18 months. You know, I'd been running the commercial businesses now for f- four or five years, but, you know, this broad, you know, about 80% of Monsanto's revenue and um, thousands of employees. And I was asked at that time to uh, consider whether or not I would uh, leave that job to go run the Climate Corporation, which was, again, a small startup that had 120 employees in San Francisco and Seattle and uh, um, very, very different. I looked at it again one more t- as, as an opportunity. I've always been driven by, hey, what else can I learn? I, you know, I, I've always been a learner um, and wanted to learn new things. And I just saw this as a, an opportunity to really do something that I felt could make a huge impact on agriculture in Monsanto going forward. Uh, I felt as well that, look, to do this, you need to bring somebody in who has a uh, knowledge of technology as well as a deep knowledge of the business. And so I looked at it as a way to actually uh, combine two huge pieces of my training over the past, at that point, uh, you know, tw- 27 years in the business. And it's just an opportunity to come and use all my skills and learn brand new things and have this opportunity to create something uh, brand new. And you don't often, ha- particularly in agriculture, you know, you don't often have this opportunity to truly create something brand new. And I saw the Climate Corporation as that opportunity. So I, uh, took the leap. But um, I'm even more convinced now that digital agriculture, digital farming um, will uh, be this next wave of innovation uh, in agriculture and truly will have a big impact on um, how we think about uh, producing food in the future. And Mike, how, how do you put this into action for farmers? Farming is an industry where highly considered purchases, you know, you make decisions for your planting year, your crop year that are, are generally irreversible. The, the value of data in driving a decision is is unquestionable. Um, yet there's a need to sort of make that work for the farmer and, and educate them and, and sort of bring them along, just like there would be, you know, any user group as you're rolling out new technology. So how how do you bring the your community of customers along, you know, on this journey and 
and have them participate with you in a way that's helping you build relevant product, generate relevant data, but at the same time, acknowledge that, hey, we're, we're experimenting and we're building and, and this isn't tried and true stuff with 20-year with patents on it. Yeah, I know this is was and still is all very new to farm, farmers. Um, I think our experience ha- has been that it, it kind of uh, tracks a typical kind of innovation distribution. You know, we have early adopters and uh, we've really relied heavily on that earlier adopter group. And so we kind of leverage that uh, that network of, uh, of uh, early adopters to really begin this journey. Uh, today, you know, we're well beyond that group. Uh, we're operating not just in the U.S., we're operating in 23 countries around the world on three continents, have 150 million subscribed acres now on our platforms. One thing is for sure, you know, farmers are always looking for innovation and they recognize that data is an underutilized asset on their farm. I can't tell you how many farmers I have spoken with through this journey where they say, yeah, I have an enormous amount of data and you'd walk into their machine shed or their office and you'd see three ring binders on the wall, you know, on a shelf or a bunch of thumb drives. And they're saying, I have all this data, but I don't know what to do with it. Boy, if you could do something with this that helps, you know, make me more productive, that would be fantastic. And that's really kind of the conversations we've been having with growers over the years. And it's at the core of their, our offering at Climate, which I think one reason why it's been so successful with respect to getting growers on board is that we've uh, recognized a, a kind of very, very common pain point, whether you're, you know, in, in Illinois or Mato Grosso in Brazil or in the Ukraine or in South Africa, farmers want all their data in one place. They want easy access to it. They want to be able to glean information from it. Yeah, and I, I don't think the modal listener to this will necessarily appreciate the degree to which a, a, a farmer is actually, you know, absolutely a, a small business owner or an enterprise. I, I think it's easy from the outside to say, okay, well, you know, we're talking about, you know, which seeds are they going to plant and are they going to spray some things? But But the reality is it's much more complicated than that. And so I think for, you know, people listening who are thinking about, Boy, digital and farming, it's, it's a really interesting intersection of legacy ways of doing business, trust in well-established, well-heeled kinds of personal ecosystems, local ecosystems, and the need, you know, the opportunity and the obligation to do more with data, the, the crosshairs of tradition and respect and loyalty and trust, along with Hey, what's the data telling me? So Monsanto today is a part of Bayer Crop Science, Mike, and now you lead climate as well as digital farming for all of Bayer. So you're the best person I can think of to answer this question. How should we think about the role that data and data science will play going forward in the business of farming? The things that intrigued me about coming to the Climate Corporation six years ago, I think, have been even more firmly uh, entrenched in my mindset about how data and digital agriculture is in fact going to be this next wave of innovation. Put it into some context, the late 1800s was the mechanization of agriculture. You know, tractors started showing up in the field and then you could look at Norman Borlaug and the Green Revolution and, and, and breeding of wheat and uh, beginning to bring fertility and crop protection in into agricultural production were big innovations. And then of course, 
in the 60s and 70s and then as we moved into the uh, you know the 90s late 80s early and into the 90s biotechnology and and then using uh, DNA sequencing to begin to understand how you actually breed plants and, and breed better plants and so uh, all these I consider as watershed events and uh, I think digital farming is another watershed event and I do believe that you know 20 years from now we'll look back on on this and, and the way we will be farming uh, will be different. I mean, you'll still be growing crops, but it's going to be, um, data will be just integral in everything we do. I think there'll be more autonomy. You'll see farming is going to look a lot different in, in, in many ways than it does today. But underlying all this will be data and data science and uh, the use of AI and machine learning and developing algorithms that are going to allow uh, growers or operations to be able to make more informed decisions in real time on how to manage a crop. And that's really, really important because uh, today there are so many things going on on the farm that lead to large variations of outcomes. And uh, data uh, can help uh, begin to address many of those. So I think people uh, see the promise of, of this type of technology and how we can utilize data to help farmers make more informed decisions to improve their productivity, help them manage risk, allow them to simplify their operations, automate their operations, and ultimately farm more sustainably. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, these are, you know, we need to figure this out. We need to go figure out how we can produce more food on less land, you know, with fewer natural resources in the face of a changing climate. Technology is the way for us to do that. And digital technology, I think, in fact, will lead the way. That's great. I, I love that. It's, it's almost like there's this series of incremental breakthroughs in things like computational power and mobility and AI and machine learning and delivery mechanisms that are they're all coming together to create this bigger breakthrough, uh, which will move the, the category forward in some really interesting ways, data-driven ways. So thanks for laying that out. Mike, I want to move into a lightning round here for some rapid fire questions. You ready? Yep. Most memorable thing you ever saw or did visiting a farmer customer? Um, at one point, I was a technology director for animal ag division, and uh, by far, it was the artificial insemination of a dairy cow. Three words that describe your leadership style. Inclusive, uh, data-based, and direct. The fraction of U.S. farmers that rely on their kids to teach them about technology and data today? Oh, for sure, somewhere between 50 and 75%. What do you think you would have done for a living if, if you hadn't come into agriculture? I think I would have been a professor. I would have been a teacher. At the college level, or do you think you would have been uh, kind of earlier in, in students' journeys? I think I would have been at the college, at the university level. I think research was in something I was always interested in, so I would I would be, you know, at a research university teaching. Your biggest professional breakthrough? I came up with a discovery to completely revamp a very old chemical process that made a, a commodity chemical that was used in uh, making tires. And it was a, a very uh, environmentally inefficient process. So for every pound of product that was made in this process, three pounds of, of chemical waste was made. So very inefficient. And I uh, discovered a brand new process to do this where the uh, ratio was for every pound of product made, 0.07 pounds of waste was made. 
So I still look back on that. Uh, it was my first patent I ever got. Uh, and I look, on, I look back on that as uh, a, big, a big breakthrough. Yeah, that's something like a 40 or 50x improvement. So that counts as a breakthrough. Uh, Mike, last one, your secret sauce, that thing or combination of things that's unique and special about the way that you show up. I feel that I show up as very authentic and very open-minded. As I mentioned, I, I just throughout my training and my experience, I think problems are solved at the interface of different disciplines and at the interface of uh, diverse skill sets and uh, and talents. And uh, and so this inclusive nature, I think, is very very important. You know, how can you bring a bunch of folks together? Uh, all focused on solving the same issue, but with very different backgrounds. And then you can do that, but as a leader, if you don't listen, if you don't step back and let the team do their thing, then you know it's kind of all for naught. So I, uh, I feel like I, uh, I'm a very inclusive, authentic um, listener, and that has served me well, and I think hopefully uh, served my teams well. And Mike, one one final question for the builders listening here: If they wanted to know what the most important piece of advice they should take from you, given the world as you've seen it, the world as you've experienced it, and the world as you've helped build it, what would that advice be? Two pieces of advice that I would give. First of all, try to work on something that you're passionate about. And that changes. And just be, you know, it doesn't always just come to you right away. Sometimes it takes time to understand that. And passion around different things uh, evolves as well. You might start thinking, might start being absolutely passionate about something. And then over time, you learn something new and you become more passionate about that. So I always felt that, hey, getting up in the morning and truly looking forward to what you were going to go do that day was really important. So I would advise people to try to find that in your life and your in your professional life. And the second piece is something I've already talked about, which is uh, I think you need to take some risk in your career. Doors open and you have to be willing to step through them. And, you know, you don't always know what's on the other side, but often it's new learnings or the ability to, to develop passions around other things uh, to work on. Uh, and it's just so important uh, to be able to go ahead and be willing to uh, try new things and to really um, press forward and expand your horizons. And that often means uh, taking a little risk in your career. Mike, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. Uh, I'm so glad that Dennis Plummer got our organizations connected all those years ago and that we got a chance to know one another. And you've been a huge influence on me and, and I appreciate you. Thanks so much for the time today. Jesse, thank you for having me. And likewise, it has been uh, a true pleasure and a great learning experience having the chance to have worked with you over the years as well. Thanks to Mike for joining us on the show today. Mike is one of the true mentors I've had in my career. His ability to simultaneously apply the scientific method to a key decision and earnestly respect the views and opinions of everyone around him made such a deep impression on me early in my career. I'm grateful to Mike and grateful that we got some of his time on today's show. And of course, I'm grateful to all of you for listening. Welcome officially to season two of Breakthrough Builders. So Mike is a CEO, a chief executive officer. You don't get to that role without having a few things break your way. But in my mind, Mike made a lot of his own luck through focus and hard work. He wasn't haphazard early on. He knew deep in his bones that he wanted to be a PhD scientist and specifically a chemist. 
when the door opened for him on the G50 project to show the whole company what he could do, he didn't just walk through it. He sprinted through it and learned he could be a great manager as well as a great scientist. And when he got to lead up a business unit at Monsanto that represented 80% of the company, his stewardship of his team and of his customers and channel partners was just incredible. So it was no surprise to me when he got tapped to become the CEO of the Climate Corporation. And living here in San Francisco and knowing Dave Friedberg and the history of climate, it was really cool to see worlds colliding in that way. So on to building blocks. One core of Mike's message was that he discovered the applicability of the scientific method to business problem solving, and that helped him be really inclusive as a manager and leader, and also better as a decision maker. So for this week's building block, I want you to think about your version of applying a skill set from one context into another context. Maybe you're really good at playing an instrument and you're just starting a programming job. How could your musical acumen help you as you build, refine, and ship software code? Maybe you're somebody who's traveled a lot or you speak several languages fluently. How can your ability to think in a different language open you up to new opinions and perspectives among your colleagues? Think of something you're good at or specially trained in and ask yourself, how can that thing help me in some other area of my life? It'll be a fun exercise. If you want some templates and tips and tricks on how to get started, check out the show notes right here in the app you're listening to this episode on or over on our website, BreakthroughBuilders.com. That's BreakthroughBuilders.com. Hit me up through the website and share some of your reflections. I'd love to hear from you and get into a dialogue and do what I can to help. Take care, Breakthrough Builders, and be well. Thanks so much for listening to Breakthrough Builders. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could spread the word by leaving a rating and a review. It really does help other listeners find us. And please, tell your friends. Breakthrough Builders is a production of the Industries team at Qualtrics. The show is written and hosted by me, Jesse Pierwalt. Mastering by Nate Crenshaw. Post-production and music by Clean Cuts Audio, part of the Three Cs Collective. Design by Baron Santiago and Bensuka Shindavijan. Website by Gregory Haydon and photography by Christy Hemclock. Special thanks to the entire Breakthrough Builders crew at Qualtrics, including Ali Rohani, Jeremy Smith, John Johnson, and Kylan Lundin.